Welcome to our weekly Bible study, friends. Um, I hope you're having a good week so far. And today, for our Bible study, I'm going to actually begin a series that we're going to combine our weekly Bible study and our Sunday morning services. We're going to have a look at the book of Esther. Now, there are 10 chapters in Esther, and so on a Sunday, we're not going to be able to go through this in much detail. Um, just because in 20 minutes or 25 minutes, uh, you know, one can't explore every avenue um, of the chapters. And so what I'm going to be doing today is doing a little bit of a background and looking at Esther chapter 1. Um, and so for those of you who tune in to our Sunday sermons, you'll be uh, very much at an advantage on Sunday as you listen to the sermon because we're going to be going into Esther chapter 2 then on Sunday. So um, just as we get together for the Bible study, it will be very helpful if you have a Bible with you. Um, so Esther, sometimes it's quite hard to find Esther in the Old Testament just because the book is hidden um, between Nehemiah and Job. Now both Nehemiah and Job are kind of longer books, whereas Esther kind of fits in very small in between them. But it's 10 chapters. So while you're having a look for the book of Esther, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will continue. So Lord God, as we come to you again uh, in our Bible study this week, we thank you for your word, your word that although it was written and composed and shared hundreds, if not, or if not thousands of years ago, it does speak into our lives and our context even now. So Holy Spirit, would you guide and lead us, and may we really wrestle with your words of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first things first, a bit of background information. Uh, who is the author of Esther? And a lot of times people just assume, well, it must be Esther. But I'm sorry to say, ladies, and please don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger, that uh, it wasn't Esther. Um, as you know, in those times, very patriarchal, that um, it was definitely written by a male and more than likely, there's three possibilities. Could have been Ezra, because he was quite a, um, a powerful scribe, Mordecai, or maybe Nehemiah. But the one thing we can't deny is that the whole story about Queen Esther takes center stage in these 10 chapters. Date-wise, um, probably about 470 BC, sort of eight, nine years after Esther had been made queen. Um, the setting is the Persian Empire, mainly around the capital city, which was called Susa. And just some interesting facts, which um, I'm sure you do know, but just to remind us as we head off into this book, is that Esther is one of only two books included in the biblical canon that's named after a woman. Uh, the other one I think you would know is Ruth, but um, this is the second one. And in the original version of Esther, so that would have been in the Hebrew, it's noted by scholars that there is no name, no title, or no pronoun relating to God in any one of the chapters. In other words, the word God or Lord is not mentioned at all, and yet you can see God's fingerprints throughout the whole story. Just an interesting fact for us. So... We're going to look at chapter 1 today, and I'm going to go through it. There's quite a lot of verses, so I'm going to go through it verse by verse. Uh, may skip over a few of those, but just to give us some background to the story. So verse 1 says, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, 
the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, which is around about the region of modern-day Ethiopia. So just that first verse gives us some insight into who the person was, the King Xerxes. He has other names, other Hebrew names that you may find in different translations. Uh, believe it or not, Xerxes is probably the easiest to pronounce and say, although it includes two X's in his name. But he ruled over 127 provinces. Now, if you just take out a, a, a map, go to Google and have a look at that, you'll see that it's a huge territory that he um, was the ruler over. Um, it was a massive empire. So with that, we can understand that comes a huge amount of power and authority, and with that, the potential for the abuse of power, um, as well as all kinds of other things. Verse 2, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, which is the capital, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. Now, at first, we read this and we think to ourselves, my goodness, 180 days of feasting and banquet. But actually, the banquet and the feasting really only comes in the next couple of verses. But that, that six months where he displays his wealth and his, uh, his power and the splendor of his kingdom is important for us to note because historically we believe that what he was doing was he was trying to win these princes and nobles of, of the provinces to come and fight alongside him as the Persian Empire um, declared war, a revenge war, on the Greeks. Now, there's a strong possibility that what they were doing here was planning a battle. And that's why they spent six months doing this. So he was showing them the wealth that he had and all the, his troops and everything that he had at his disposal. So they would join forces with him. Now, the battle that they um, more than likely fought after this is a very, very well-known, very famous battle in, in the history of warfare. And that is the Battle of Thermopylae which um, takes place. In fact, those, those of you who are listening and you know anything about the Spartans, and there's a famous movie made out of that uh, story called 300, which just um, warning you, if you do decide to watch it, it's very, very violent. But for, for the sake of our Bible study and historical perspective, this uh, battle um, that, that Xerxes is planning is more than likely this famous battle that takes place um, around about the August, September of 480 BC. But you can do, if you're into history, you can do a bit of research and, and uh, I love doing that, but that's just for another, another time. But anyway, when, when these six months of planning and that kind of strutting his stuff finishes, we read verse five, that the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of his palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement marble, mother of pearl, and all other costly stones were there. 
Verse 7 says, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each person what he wished. Now, if you don't get the picture of extravagance in those verses, well, nothing will be able to um, show you more than that. So just pure opulence, pure extravagance, a seven-day feast and festival that more than likely got totally out of hand. So at the same time that the king is doing this, more than likely for the men, for, the, for his subjects and his probably future warriors and, and uh, generals and so on, Queen Vasti, um, verse 9, also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now, again, this patriarchal society, the women um, ate separately from the men, and even in the royal palace, this was uh, what took place. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and then they've got their names, very unusual names, um, that he commanded them to bring Queen Vasti to him. Now, I like the way that the Bible says this kind of just subtly with was he was in high spirits with wine. The New Living Translation is a lot more specific. It says he was half drunk with wine. So basically, he had been having a good party for seven days. Now, in this moment, he calls his seven eunuchs who serve him to bring Queen Vasti uh, before him. Now, this Bible study is rated PG, so I'm not going to go into all this detail, but you can just figure out for yourself why the king needed seven eunuchs and just think about how many women and wives that he had, and that will probably answer your story uh, or your questions. So he says to them, bring Queen Vasti, uh, she must wear the crown, and the verse 11 says, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was very lovely to look at. So King Xerxes is thinking to himself, you know what, everyone is in such high spirits, it's such a fantastic time, I'm going to bring my beautiful queen before these men, because they would have only been the men, and I want to brag about it, I want to show her off. Verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vasti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So here is something that's very interesting, and the, for our day, maybe doesn't seem as radical as, as in the time of 480 BC, but when we understand the context, we see that this is actually quite shocking, and that's why the king got so angry. Um, it's shocking in the sense that for one of the first times in history, we see a woman putting her foot down and saying no to being treated as an object. So in light of the present situation we have in our country and the world where we speak out strongly against gender-based violence and the abuse of women and children, this is kind of like a forerunner to this. Now, there's a number of reasons why Queen Vasti may have been so bold as to say no. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons could have been that she also had had too much to drink um, and was feeling full of Dutch courage, and so she said no. Um, 
there is another reason which I think is, is also very plausible, and that is that if you look at historically when their son, Artaxerxes, was born, he was born the, the following year, so she may have very well been pregnant, heavily pregnant maybe, or certainly pregnant, and she didn't want to be paraded like some kind of, um, I don't know, some kind of object in front of all these drunken warriors, and so she just said, you know what, I'm just not going to do it. And, and for whatever the reason was, this whole uh, decision that she takes to say no obviously puts in play a whole lot of other decisions and consequences that make up the story of Esther. In fact, Esther would just be purely um, a name that was in the background and in the history books if it wasn't for Queen Vashti's decision to say no. Now, we must also note here that when the king becomes furious and he burns with anger, that this is a dangerous thing. Uh, as Jane Austen said in Pride and Prejudice, angry people are not always wise. And um, Mitch Albon in the book, The Five People You Will Meet in Heaven, says, holding anger is a poison. It eats you from the inside. We think that hating is a weapon that attacks the person who harmed us, but hatred is a curved blade, and the harm we do is to ourselves. And this is so true of King Xerxes because in his anger, he now consults, if you read verse 13, 14, he consults seven wise men that are in his, um, in his kingdom. And he says to them, verse 15, interestingly, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vasti? She hasn't obeyed my commands as the king. And so what must be done? Um, quite ironic here, I only learned this just by reading up through one of the commentaries, that it was already against the law for a woman to be um, paraded or to be brought um, in a public gathering of men, which ironically King Xerxes had broken himself in commanding her to do that. Now he goes back to that same law to try and find some uh, reasoning or, or some, some evidence that he could use against his queen. So I think that even in his, his anger, he's making a fool of himself. So then one of the wise men, um, a man by the name of Memukin, replies in the presence of the king and the nobles, and he says, look, Queen Vashti's done something very wrong. Not only has she spoken out against the king, but against all the nobles and the peoples in the land. Uh, for the queen's conduct will become known to all women and they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded the queen to be brought before him and she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So we see this moment where suddenly the men and the warriors are now worried as to how their wives will respond. If the queen speaks out against the king and gets away with it, then what are the ordinary wives going to do? Now, in our modern language, we speak about the power of an influencer, somebody who has influenced mainly on social media or in the public sphere. Now, we see here Queen Vashti becoming an influencer. And the men are not happy about that. They want to shut her up. Um, and because the men hold the power, they then decide they are going to silence her effectively. 
because we must remember that Queen Vasti is in her celebration, in her court, with all the other women of these noblemen, all the other wives. And they would have known very quickly that she had said no to uh, being paraded in front of all the men. So that kind of news would have spread very quickly. Um, if we think it spreads quickly today with social media, even in those times, it would have spread very quickly. And so we, we see... Um, in this Old Testament story, this patriarchal society, um, the beginnings or maybe the continuation of some kind of gender-based um, bias. Women must be kept quiet. The wife can't speak out against the husband. And, and we know that this has um, you know, kind of taken root throughout societies. And uh, I'm not going to get into the whole thing about the role of a husband and wife and and that in a marriage now, because um, that's a different conversation. But, but what I want to pick up in this is the, the fear on the, on the behalf of the men who now suddenly want to keep Queen Vasti quiet because she has had the freedom or the courage just to say, look, no. Um, and we must remember that in this, this is the, a, a recount of a story that took place. The writer would have his own bias in it. But it's, um, it's a powerful moment in the history of the Persian Empire, but also in what happens later on, because we will see, and I'll speak about this more on Sunday, is that this is a, a starting point of, it's, it's a decision that has ramifications, and in a way, good ramifications for the people of Israel. So Vasti's no, and her right to be able to say no, catches the society by surprise. Uh, the men and the advisors of the, of the king, um, if you read on, they will see that they, they, they kind of depose her and say that she can't now uh, appear in front of the king. But this will open the door for the anointing or the blessing or the crowning of a new queen, which we'll pick up in the later chapters. Just out of interest, if you want to read more broadly, there's something about this story from Esther chapter 1 that resonates in Matthew 14 with King Herod in, in his drunken party where he offers the daughter of Herodias, his new wife, anything she wants. And, and she then asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And again, he has a, a powerful leader, a male in society who doesn't want to be uh, scoffed at or doesn't want to seem weak who then has this tough decision to make does he follow through with this strange and really morbid request or does he just laugh it off and I think we know how the story continues but that's in Matthew chapter 14 so anyway they, they verse 19 of chapter 1 they issue a royal decree that says that this should never be um, you know tolerated and that the king must give her royal position to someone else. You know, kings were treated as gods in those days, and so it's a kind of thing to say, well, then the king has now declared this, it's going to be like this forever and ever. Just out of interest, Queen Vasti is not killed by Xerxes in this, in this incident, which uh, in those, con those days could well have happened. She's banished from the site. But later on in the history books, not so much in the scriptures, but in the history books, we see that Queen Vasti kind of comes out of the shadows again when her son, Artaxerxes, in fact their son, Artaxerxes, comes to power. She has a, quite an influential role over his life too. So 
um, as the saying goes, you can't keep a good woman from um, from standing up and from you know being uh, being influential. Verse twenty. Then, uh, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And listening to this from our modern modern eyes or modern ears, modern context, it's interesting that we would assume that a wife or a woman would respect her husband if he treats her um, in a negative way. I think we've moved a long way since then. Um, and, and so just as men demanded or, or, or expected respect, so we need uh, to have some kind of balance. And I think even if we go into the New Testament, um, which is many, many centuries later, we see the slowly, this, this slow transition uh, where there's, um, there's a sense of respect and equality in the relationships between a husband and a wife, king and a queen, and so on. You know, and, and, and pride and anger, when we treat people with anger, it doesn't mean that they're going to love us and respect us anymore. You know, when you treat people with love and dignity, you get a much better response from that. So anyway, um, just really wrestle with that. So they send these dispatches out to the lands so that everyone now knows that Queen Vasti has been sorted out for her indiscretions, and hopefully this will put this stop to other women standing up for themselves. Now, it's a, it's a chapter, like I said, it's very much introductory into the story of Esther, and uh, I want to just kind of come to a close, otherwise I'm going to run ahead of myself for even the sermon and things. But in this month, August, which is Women's Month, we remember that we as a society, and certainly as Christians, need to treat each other with the love and the respect that God gives us. So love your neighbor as you love yourself. And although maybe in your home or in your community it doesn't seem as bad, we must remember that we live in uh, Southern Africa. We live in a world, not just, not just Africa, but in the world, where there are many, many women whose daily experience is abuse and being pushed down and on the receiving end of anger from their partners or from community. And so it's important for us, like I say, even if we aren't victims of that, that, that we pray and we do all we can to speak out for justice for women in our communities. No one wants to see another human being treated as if they are an, an, an animal or like an object, which I think for me is the point of Queen Vasti saying no. Um, and so, friends, yeah, I, I'm going to leave it there. Maybe I've posed some questions for you or reflections. Uh, dig a little bit deeper into Esther. It's a remarkable story and one that I think we can draw some parallels in our own context and time. But I pray that you would also stay with us on this journey as we go through the book of Esther in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you see each person, male and female, with your unique eyes. And you love each one of us. You've given us unique gifts and talents. And Lord God, you've invited us to be partners with you in the body of Christ and that we need one another. And so as we reflect on the story of Esther, we are mindful and we pray for women and young girls especially, but children who are victims of gender-based violence and abuse. And Lord, we, we reach out through our hearts and our prayers for those communities, but also, Lord, that the church, 
and as a Christian community, we would be, be a safe place, a safe haven for those impacted by this. And so teach us to learn from the story of Esther how to be really active and compassionate followers of Jesus. We pray this all today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, friends. God bless you. We'll hopefully see you on Sunday for the sermon and the next part. Bye-bye.